Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. Hey, guys. Welcome to Tax Tuesday. My name is Toby Mathis. And I'm Jeff Webb. And we are bringing tax knowledge to the masses. So welcome to Tax Tuesday again. We have a whole bunch of people on to help you today. My God, we got Matthew, Patty, Christos, Dana, Elliot, Pio, Tavia. We have a full team in the house to help answer your questions. Let me know if you're out there and if you could hear us, say loud and clear if you're having any tech problems. By all means, let us know as well. I see some some of these. I see some of this. see some of that. Also, let us know where you're from, where you're sitting right now. Not where you live, but where you're sitting. What's What city, what state, if you say semi-conscious. Somebody's in Florida, New York City, Spokane, Washington, San Diego, SoCal, Albuquerque, Maine, Redwood City, Kapolei, San Antonio, Dallas, Las Vegas, Minneapolis, Fort Bragg, Miami, Arizona, Pine Ridge, Tulsa, Washington, D.C., from the swamp, Lake Charles, Philly, and sitting on my butt, Redlands, California, Sheridan, Newark, Denver, Houston, El Paso, just talking to a friend that was in El Paso, you guys are doing great down there, Claremont, Columbus, then we got Sherry in Florida, Indiana, San Jose, Long Beach, Look at that. Patty's in San Diego. She likes to look out over the ocean in the morning. San Francisco Bay Area. So we got people from all over the place. That's the fun part. Christine in Florida. Where in Florida, Christine? We love a little, uh, we love us a little Florida until it's middle of the summer, in which case we melt and they have mosquitoes about the size of bats. Mm -hmm. Seattle, Deerfield Beach. Seattle's us. I lived in Seattle for 20 something years. There we got New Orleans. Somebody says, Oh, I never knew. That's so weird. What we do is we know Georgetown, Texas. Oh, right outside of Austin. That's where uh, Carl Zeldner, one of our attorneys, grew up in Georgetown. Philly. That's where I grew up. Some of you guys know. Philly and Seattle. I actually moved from Philadelphia to Vashon Island in the middle of the uh, Pacific Northwest, in the middle of the Puget Sound. There we got Las Vegas and uh, another Aloha from Hawaii. All right. So let's dive into this. Uh, we answer any question that you guys can come up with. You throw it up there in the question and answer. You can use chat to say hi, but if you're going to ask a question, make sure that you're doing it in the question and answer feature and our folks will get on it. We have everybody from tax attorneys to, I think we have CPAs on, we have bookkeeper, multiple tax professionals, and we will get your question answered. If my people are too good, I'll never see your question. <laughs> so, I know they pop up and they disappear. Yeah, sometimes they're like, boom, and our guy's like, ah, there's a question. Let's make sure we get it answered. So this is your freebie. You don't have to worry about paying anybody. We like to just give back. And if you have really extensive questions, by all means, email it in to Tax Tuesday to Anderson Advisors. If it's really personal and it's not a general question, then we may say you got to become a client. Otherwise, we just answer. And then I use the questions that you email in. Jeff and I answer those live here uh, every other Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So uh, what we say is fast, fun, and educational. We want to get back and help educate. 
I shoot for an hour, although Jeff talks a lot. Jeff is like a chatty Kathy. We'll be here till midnight if it was up to Jeff. No, I'm well, it doesn't help that you have to interpret what I actually said. <laughs> <laughs> I just skipped a little spin. <laughs> what did you say? Sense. Yes. <laughs> Didn't you mean this, <laughs> Jeff? Jeff's been a CPA for how long have you been a CPA for? I've been a CPA for 25 years. Been been in the business for about 30. Shimony Christmas. So just uh, since yesterday, me, I bought a degree out of a, cra- a Cracker Jack box. I'm a tax attorney, CPA tax attorney, and uh, we love answering questions because uh, nobody else will talk to us pretty much because CPA tax attorney. So it's only funny because it's true. All right, let's get into this. Here's the questions we're going to be asking or we're going to be answering. How does a single high W-2 earning individual take advantage of passive losses? Great question. We'll be answering that. How are inherited stock shares treated when sold? Is there any limit on using required minimum distributions for multiple charitable donations? Could a partial RMD be taken in January and then have the charitable portion spread out in donations over the rest of the year? Should an S corporation pay profits as dividends? Question mark. We'll answer that. Uh, Is it preferable to have a C corp or an LLC as your holding entity? We'll answer that. Can a part-time W-2 employee 20 hours a week be considered a full-time real estate investor? I currently own for rentals and claim deductions such as home office and paying my child to perform bookkeeping. We'll dissect that. It's an interesting question. I have lived in my house since 2016. If I get married soon, do I qualify for 1031 exchange? Assuming my future wife never lived in the house. Also, can I buy my next primary residence first and then sell my previous one? Interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Are proceeds receiving received from winning a court case or a case in court, say 20 million taxable. I'm planning on suing somebody. What if I get that 20 million? How is it going to be taxed? You're not going to like the answer, but I'll give it to you. I need to increase my income. How should one file with multiple properties? This is one of the weird ones, but we'll answer that too. What is the process to begin issuing W-2s from my C-Corp? It's been an active entity for several years, but I'm just now needing to pay a W-2 salary. So we'll go over that one as well. So we have a lot of questions to answer. So let's dive right into the number one. How does a single high W-turn earning individual take advantage of passive losses? Well, it's kind of difficult. Get right to the point. Yes, greed. Wearing wearing my black hat. No, passive losses for a high earner are going to be subject to limitations. Uh, You're not, you don't lose the losses. They just build up underneath you. If you're into something like buying properties, let the loss build up a little, sell it again, that can really actually work out well because every time you sell a property, any gains on that property are also passive gains as you get the offset your losses and so forth. Mm-hmm. Let's break it down into little pieces because Jeff is absolutely right, but he's using some, like sometimes we assume everybody knows what these things are. There's active income, mm-hmm. like what I work, sweat on my brow. I'm working at work. I'm W-2 wage earner. So when they say a single high W-2 earning individual, that's your ordinary income. They're active ordinary income subject to social security taxes, et cetera. There's two other types of income floating around out there, portfolio and passive. Portfolio uh, income is things like interest, royalties, dividends, it's capital gains. And then you have this thing called passive income, Mm -hmm. which is rents, in businesses in which you do not materially participate. 
So passive income is I'm not involved in the business. I'm not doing anything or I have rents coming in and there's two exceptions to the rents that makes them ordinary. So I can take them as a loss against my W-2 income. Otherwise, passive losses have to be used against passive income. And so what Jeff is saying quite accurately is that if you have W-2 income, that's ordinary income, active ordinary income. If you have passive losses, they don't offset. Not even the th- like the 3,000 people are used to, that's capital losses. Passive losses means, hey, it's rents, losses from passive activities, or that passive business. Like I, I, I gave money to Uncle Al and his pizza shop keeps losing money. I can't use those losses against my W-2 income if I don't work in the pizza shop in any way. I'm not materially participating. So the way you unlock those losses, there's really three ways, two ways that I'm like, I'm going to focus on. Number one is you're an active participant in the real estate and you make less than 150,000. So when somebody says high W-2 earning, I'm assuming they're above 150,000. And if you're below that, you could take up to $25,000 as a loss. The other way that, that we talk about a lot is having a spouse who qualifies as a real estate professional. This person is single, so they're not going to be in that category. I was going to say, what are you suggesting right. here? So we throw that out, which brings us to the third way. And the third way is you unlock passive losses when you dispose of the asset itself. So if I have losses off of a piece of real estate and I've run across this scenario mm-hmm. And somebody is like, well, it didn't really make any money and I'm not going to sell this property. And I look at them and say, well, do you have any passive losses accumulated? And quite often you'll have years of passive losses that have accumulated and you're like, dump it. Well, I don't want to pay any tax. Well, you're not going to like that loss is going to be unlocked and it's going to offset your W-2 income. So I could, I could sell something at break even and still make a whole bunch of money because I might like, let's say I have $50,000 of carry forward losses. I haven't been able to take on this property. I've had it for a while. Every year I get depreciation that I can't take because it's passive. And let's say 10 years down the road, I'm like, hey, you know, what, what should I do? I could sell it. And it's basically a break even. Okay, sell it. That $50,000 loss will offset $50,000 of your income. Depending mm-hmm. on what your tax bracket has, is, it could be 37% plus state taxes. So it could be as high as 50%. Yeah, I probably wouldn't do it for 25 grand, which in that particular case, the highest it would be. But let's say that I had $200,000 of losses, I might do it. So, you know, so you look at those. So how does a single high W2 earning individual take advantage of passive losses? It's really tough. You dispose of the asset is the only answer I could think of. Or if you're a W2 earning individual and you're working part-time, you might be able to qualify as a real estate professional. Highly unlikely because you have to spend more than half your time doing real estate activities and it needs to be at least 750 hours. I was going to say the other consideration is if you find an activity where you can generate passive income and you also have those passive losses in another activity, they're going to offset each other. Absolutely, 100%. So then Jeff says, hey, if I have passive losses, how does a single high W2 earning individual take advantage of those passive losses? with more passive income. Yeah, the old, the old rule was if you're paying taxes, you don't have enough real estate. So to a certain extent, that's, that's you know we, we kind of small about it. But if you have passive losses, if I have 10 or $20,000 of passive losses every year, what you really need to do is go find yourself some good cash flow properties because that's free money. 
you get the depreciation from the exist the the, the new purchase plus you're gonna, you're not going to pay any tax on any of that income so you can go buy some some mid to low end housing that's cash flow positive and say hey you know what if nothing else that money I'm not going to pay tax on it I'm going to save that money so you factor in that calculation great answer sir thank you how are inherited stock shares treated when sold okay I'll I'll do this with an example my father died in 2008 if I had inherited his stock. He owned a lot of railroad stock. I wouldn't own it at what he paid for it. I would own it at the value on the day he died. Step up in basis. Step up in basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is, say, uh, I'm Toby's dad and I die today. Toby inherits all his stock and he wants to sell it. Well, first off, he's going to have a step up in basis. Uh, if he does have any gain or loss, it's going to be at long-term capital gain rates, even if he holds it for a day. Yeah, because I because you inherit it at that holding period, right? Right. So, and same thing with gifting. So, let's say that uh, my dad passed away quite a while ago, but let's say that somebody thinks they're you know they're getting older and they're worried. Hey, I'm going to give shares to my 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 kid, or you know you know I'm just going to I'm thinking about transferring, and I'm nervous. I heard about this Biden character, and he wants to lower the estate tax. So your accountant tugs on your fear strings and get you to give some things over. When you give an asset, they get your holding period and your basis Mm -hmm. when you gift it. When you die and it transfers, they get your holding period, but the basis steps up to the fair market value. So Jeff's example, let's just say it was 2008 that your dad Mm -hmm. passed. So let's say that Jeff inherited a bunch of railroad stocks in 2008. It would have been the basis in 2008. So let's say his dad had it almost nothing. And then Jeff holds it today till today and sells it today. It's capital gains, but Jeff only pays capital gain on the portion that grew from 2008 to right. now. And it's still long-term capital gains, which is zero, 15, or 20%. I want to go back to what you were saying about the gifting. And I, I think this is something a lot of people don't understand. Mm-hmm. If my don't, father, don't do it. If my father had gifted me, all that stock the day before he died, my basis in that stock would have been close to zero. Yeah, it would have been his. I actually had this happen with four uh, siblings mm-hmm. who dad got talked into by accountant. Let's transfer a building to the kids. They put it in limited partnership and gave all the kids limited partnership interest. And then dad passed away about two years later. They had a building, had almost no basis in it, like 100,000 bucks, and it's worth millions of dollars. They wouldn't have paid any tax. And the accountant caused them to pay some massive taxes. And it was like, you knucklehead. I just want to push them in the nose. And so we stopped making people scared and doing stupid things. So that's, that's even better. Just wait. Don't do things like with this Biden situation. I'm not taking like, Hey, what, what could happen? Let's do some stuff now. I'm just saying, just watch. We never know what's going to come out of Congress again. Congress doesn't know what's going to come out of Congress half the time. Yeah, we've seen some things with that California Prop 19, some gifting that I'm not sure is such a great idea. They're trying to get out of paying taxes all, so they're gifting property away. and It could turn around and bite them badly. In the katush. I think it's going to. Somebody says they like your beard. Thank you. I like your beard, sir. All right. Oh, Infinity. Please come visit us May 15th, uh, Saturday, May 15th. We got a free one. Yay. Infinity Investing Through Stocks. This is always fun. We have Eric Dodds come on and 
uh, Nicole DeBrasio. She was a, a number two on The Apprentice, I think in year two. Hmm. It was one of them. She, she was a while ago. So she got she got fired right at the right at the end. <clears throat> awesome person, does a great job with Infinity. I I birthed this this child out years, a few years back, and it just keeps uh, keeps growing up. And then the real estate side is in the afternoon, so it's a one day class, but it's stock in the morning, real estate in the afternoon. It's a lot of fun, and it's free. So you can see right there. Claim your free ticket. Come on in and join us, and learn how to get rich slowly and surely. And tax advantagely, if that's a word, Lee. And uh, there's your link. You can go do it. Let me see if I can, if I'm missing anything. Oh, look at that. Look at all these questions that came in. Holy moly. Yes. Poor accountants. So let me grab one. The solo Roth 401k is for a sole proprietor? No. You could have a solo 401k for any business that has less. Basically, it's partners or spouses that are the owners in a business, but it could be an S-corp, C-corp, LLC taxes, a sole proprietorship, sole proprietorship. Somebody asked, does the stock basis still work if they are in a trust? Yes, if it's a living trust. If it's an irrevocable trust, then you get into, like, when I say irrevocable, it means if it's buying the asset, it would step up. We use those in deferred sales trust. It's a little more complicated than I want to get into on a with a few hundred people staring at me, 400 people staring at me, because I'm like, I don't want you guys to get the wrong idea. But if you have really highly appreciated assets and you want to stretch it out over mm-hmm. 20 or 30 years and you want to sell it, there's a way to do that where you're not you're not paying any tax now. Somebody says, what is the best for a new realtor? Sole proprietorship, LLC, Christine? The answer is going to be uh, more than likely an LLC tax as an S-corp or an S-corporation because... The S corporation, I know there's a question coming up on this, does not pay the self-employment tax on its profit. So as as opposed to a sole proprietor who does, plus you can have an accountable plan in an S corporation and reimburse yourself a lot of things that are not available. Somebody says, as a married couple, does the $500,000, I think they, uh, Lori, you're referring to the 121 exclusion, the capital gain exclusion for your house when it's sold, and it does. It's for capital gains on a personal residence that you lived in two of the last three years. There's a couple of exceptions to the two-year, if you got moved, I think if you're military or if you- Two of the last five. Two of the last five, right? But but if you, uh, sorry, yeah, two of the last five. Okay. But if somebody lived in it one year and they were forced to move uh, in the military or forced, moved, otherwise you could probably get half of it or a proportion. Yeah. There's specific rules for like job relocations. Yeah. So, so we say two out of five and it's not the last two out of five, it's two out of five. So you could, you could be your personal residence for two years, then you make it into a rental for three and then you sell it. You could still have the capital gains exclusion. Somebody says if the capital gains rate were to be raised, what would be some of the ways to limit the tax increase? Don't sell it. <laughs> Do you know that you could borrow against bitcoins now? I was this many days old when I learned that, but they're starting to do lending against Bitcoin so you don't have to pay tax. I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah. So the only, the way you do it is you either gift it to a charity, you don't sell it and you use it to leverage. Like for those of you who have a, uh, a blue chip portfolio, you could do what's called a security backline of credit. So if you need cash and you think, oh, I'm going to sell some shares, don't sell your shares. If it's going to be in a high tax bracket, you could borrow against it and it's free. Next question. I'll read them off all day long if you let me. Is there a limit or any limit on using required minimum distributions for multiple charitable donations? 
Could a partial RMD be taken in January and then have the charitable portion spread out in donations over the rest of the year? This is actually a really interesting question. There is no limit on how much you can use in RMDs for charitable contributions. However, there's a couple of rules that come into play. It has to be a direct contribution from your retirement plan to the charity. So in a normal year, this matters. This year and maybe next year, can't remember if the 100% AGI is, I think it's this year, it doesn't matter because normally I can only give cash of 60% of my adjusted gross income. So if I have an RMD of $20,000 and I only have, let's say, $5,000 of other income, so I have $25,000 total, and I'm just talking about taxable income, you may have other assets, you may have other things, but I only have income of 25,000, I would be limited to 60% of the 25,000 if I gave it directly to charity, if I gave cash directly to charity. If I do what Jeff is talking about, there's a, what is that, $100,000 a year I can give to charity directly from an, an IRA? I forget the, the cap. But I could give that $20,000 required minimum distribution directly to charity. And I don't have to worry about the 60%. Uh, another thing to keep in mind is RMDs are considered paid from the first distributions. So he's talking about taking a partial distribute or partial mm-hmm. RMD in January. That's going to be an RMD payment, and mm-hmm. you cannot later go back and reclassify that as, Correct. Uh, as an RMD distribution. I, I just don't think it would be a... Uh, I don't think it's going to be a big deal. I don't think it's going to be a big deal because you have 100%. So what you take as an RMD and you want to give it to charity, you mm-hmm. just give it to charity. You have 100% that you can write off of tax. The other issue with this is if you take RMD distributions, but you're still contributing to your plan, your IRA or whatever, mm-hmm. it can nullify that. It can? It can nullify that. Uh, so we don't want to do that. So you don't want to have charitable giving and then also put uh, more contributions put more money in, in, into that. So they don't like that. Yeah. That's why you talk to your accountant first. Run your scenario by the accountant before you do it. So if you're thinking of taking RMD, they can give you the rules. Like Jeff would say, have it go directly from the IRA or 401k directly. Somebody asked let me see if they were, they were asking questions from earlier, but I'll, I'll same, go back to that. Yeah, same thing if you're contributing stocks to a charity. Mm-hmm. Do not sell those stocks. Donate them directly. All, all highly appreciated capital assets, you should consider giving them directly to the charity because you get a deduction at its fair market value if you held them over a year. And you don't have to recognize them as income. You get the mm-hmm. deduction without the other side. Mm-hmm. This is another one. Uh, here, I'll... I'm reading too many questions. I'm going to read this one. Should an S-Corp pay profits as dividends? So an (laughs) S-Corp... I was just going straight past it, blowing right by it. An S-Corp does not pay dividends. Uh, An S-Corp passes its profits and losses directly to shareholders. Mm -hmm. You are taxed on the S-Corp's profits and losses, whether that's paid out or not. So I know Toby's going to give us an example here. Well, no. So a corporation, a C-corp, corporation pays on net income. So they're going to pay taxes. In an S-corp, it passes it down to the shareholders. Mm -hmm. So that's number one. Whether or not you distribute it, it's being taxed down. So if that S-corporation, let's say an S-corp, it makes a net profit. So net profit of $500,000 and it distributes $100,000 to the shareholders. How much tax does that shareholder pay? How much income, I should say, 
is allocated to that shareholder? The answer is 500,000, whether you take the distribution or not. It's just income to you, so it doesn't matter. The cool part is that if you take a distribution, only part of this is going to be salary. I say about one-third. The IRS, whenever they go to tax court, says one-third. But in the, the actual rule is a reasonable salary. So I should, I should point the arrow the other direction. So that just means that ordinarily, if I'm a sole proprietor and I, I make 500000 I have $500,000 of self-employment income. This is really important because the Biden proposal is to have self-employment tax come back into play after 400,000. There's a phase out at 140,000 on a big chunk of that. The old age, disability, survivors, and hospital insurance portion is 12.4%. And it phases out right now at 140,000. He wants it to come back at 400,000. So you'd have 12.4% on the first 150 or 140. You'd have another 12.4% on the 400 to 500, and you'd have 2.9% on the whole thing. That's the Medicare portion. Versus if I had this same scenario, I would have about, let's just say, $40,000 of salary or $33,000. I'm just going to use 40 because it's easy for me to do math. And then I'd have $460,000 that is not subject to any of that Social Security taxes, which would save me. I don't know the exact dollars, but I would guesstimate it's going to be over $20,000 a year in the tax savings just by having it as a S corp. Now, C corp, same scenario. It makes $500,000, but it pays me one hundred. dollars Same scenario. It's going to pay tax on, if the C corp just keeps the five hundred, dollars it's going to pay tax on $500,000 at 21%. And they're talking about increasing that to 25 or 28%. My, my money is on, that'll go up to 25% when it goes through Congress. But if I paid out 100000 and same scenario, 40000 was W-2, 60000 was dividend, the, the numbers get a little wonky. You're going to have 400000 You're actually going to have, again, 460000 of profit taxed at 21%, and then you'd have 60000 taxed as long-term capital gains to the recipient. I'm not going to do the math. It's 36% on those dollars. So you're not getting killed. You're not getting hurt by the double tax, but it's still there. Not fun. Can profit from stock activities be offset by passive loss from real estate? No. And the, and the reason is passive losses can't offset non-passive income. Yeah. So not only does it not offset ordinary income, but it does not offset capital gains Mm -hmm. and your stock activities are capital in nature. So they're capital gains. Yeah. And if you think about it, you want your capital gains to be the last thing you offset because they are at the lowest tax rate that you pay. You want it to offset other, like if you have the $25,000 that we talked about for active rental or real estate, you're going to apply that against uh, your wages and other earned income that you're paying a higher rate of tax. Yeah, somebody says, is the two of five years counted to specific days or just sometime during the year? It's actually days. Yeah. We decided our long we, we decided to turn our long-term residence into a rental on May 1st, 2018, and move to tenant and over the Memorial Day weekend. Is my window almost closed? Yes. And it's gonna be really hard to get it back if you let it close. So I think that's what is that? So two years, so one, two, three. Yeah, you're really close. 
May 1st. Yeah, so they need to be gone by this weekend. But that's just for the 121 exclusion. Mike, you could still make that a 1031 exchange at any time you want to. Like, So if you want to sell that property and not pay tax on it, you don't have to do the capital gains exclusion. You could do the, 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 the 1031. What you lose by doing that is a step up on the capital gain side. Ordinarily, if I could do a 1031 exchange and a 121, where I step up the basis by the amount of the capital gain exclusion on the property. Mm-hmm. So if I bought a property, let's say half a million dollars, I sold it for two million, but I have five hundred thousand dollars of capital gain exclusion. What would happen is I could ten thirty one that two million dollars. My basis would step up to a million because I take my five hundred thousand dollar capital gain exclusion and add it to the basis. So my new property would have a basis of one million instead of five hundred thousand. And if that went, whoosh, I'm sorry, didn't mean to get into that much detail on a simple question. Let's jump on. <laughs> I just get excited about stuff like that. Uh, can I still make a contribution to a Roth IRA or solo 401k for 2020? Yes. Uh, you have up until May 17th. Yep. You still can, but you're getting close. But you can. And actually, the solo 401k, if you're just doing a traditional solo 401k, the employer contribution can be made all the way up until the tax returns filed for the employer and you. So you could go all the way till September 15th. Yep. So uh, if you have a regular old solo 401k and the employer wants to make a 25% contribution for whatever it paid you last year, it certainly can. Same thing with SEP, same thing with simple IRAs. And the other change is you can still create that 401k plan. Yeah, the, uh, the, it changed under the CARES Act, so you can do that. The other one is you can go all the way up till October 15th, I believe, with a SEP IRA. So if you're somebody who doesn't have a retirement plan and you have like a S-corp or a sole proprietor, you could still do some stuff. You could also do the HSA up until May 17th. So so there's some ways to lower your taxes still for last year. Is it preferable to have a C-corp or an LLC as your holding entity? My opinion is it's it's better to have the LLC as your holding entity. You hear C-corp holding companies, but they are typically holding other C corporations. Yeah. So this is a really good one. First off, LLCs are not a tax standpoint. A lot of you guys know this. So uh, I always say that we can make fun of people if they've been on this tax Tuesdays before and they know this. And we always say we're allowed to make fun of you. There's no such thing in the tax code as an LLC for a tax treatment. There's no tax form for an LLC. It, It borrows somebody else. So as an LLC, it's a state entity. And then it says it's either disregarded, taxes, a partnership, S corporation, C corporation, trust, whatever. You're letting the IRS know what tax form you're going to file for it. So you could have an LLC tax as a C corp. You could have a C corp tax as a C corp. When you talk about a holding entity, I'm thinking of the, tr- the way we refer to a holding entity is it's an entity holding assets. And those assets are almost always subject to capital gains. And I don't want to turn capital gains into active ordinary income by putting them inside a C-corp and forcing them to be paid out as a wage or as a, as a dividend where it's taxed at the corporate level and as the individual. So we would say, make it an LLC that is a pass-through LLC. More likely than not, it's going to be a partnership. So one thing I don't think we've ever talked about on here is why have a holding entity at all? The holding entity is a fancy way of saying a safe. And there's a few different ways to look at it. So a lot of folks think of an entity 
like I have this coffee cup and it's to protect the coffee from something that's, you know, attacking it from the outside or, uh, or better yet, this is to protect me from the coffee in it burning me. Mm -hmm. I have coffee. So sorry. I'll pretend it's tea. I'll pretend it's tea. So nobody yells at me. So let's say this is hot beverage, hot water, and I don't want it to burn me. So I put it in this nice little vessel. So that's an LLC. So let's say you have a, a risk asset, like a, uh, a single family resident where the, the tenant could sue you. Something bad happens. They sue you. Well, it's in a nice vessel to protect you, that LLC. But on the same token, somebody may want to take my coffee cup. And in some states, they can't. The most they could ever get is a lien against my coffee cup. So I still have my coffee cup. I could still drink my coffee, but they can't take the coffee cup from me, which like in California, I could take your cup. So the holding entity is a fancy way of saying, hey, let's just grab all of our coffee cups, for lack of a better word, and put them in one case. In that case, nobody can take away from us. Also, from a tax standpoint, we could have that one case, the holding entity taxes a partnership, and it reports all the activity that occurs inside it. So I could have 100 LLCs being held by a single LLC and file one tax return for federal income tax purposes. And I could report it all and take that one end item and report it on page two of my schedule. E. And I'm like, yay, right? So and I, and I just saved myself. Why would I do that? Well, because on page one of your schedule, e, this is probably deep. If you're, if you're applying for mortgages, they'll use 70% of your income on page one, whereas they'll use 100% of your income on page two. And so if you normally report all of your rentals, just right on your, on your schedule E. So you have like 10 pages of schedule E on your 1040. And you're like, you feel good. Cause you're like, look at all my properties. Cause it's three per schedule. If you were going in for a loan and you wanted to lever that at all, they're not going to use all of your income. They're going to use 70% of that amount, as opposed to if I have it all going onto page two, I get a hundred percent. And the only way you find that out is you have to go to it. Uh, somebody says, is the Biden administration does a tax increase, can the tax law go to effect on the beginning of 2021 or after the date? That's really an interesting question as, as to how far back they would go. I can't see a tax increase going retroactively. No, it's a taking. They can't do it if it's going to hurt you. They, In theory, they could try, but uh, <laughs> no. It would raise quite a stink. Yeah. yeah like it, they would lose in court, I believe, because they can't go hurt you retroactively. I'm trying to see if there was another really good question and she just, oh, there we go. Did you say that if someone owns stock, they could borrow against it if they don't want to sell it, such as blue chips? Yes. It's called a security back line of credit, Lori. They've been around for a long time. All right. Next question. A lot of people don't realize it, but you have to have a blue chip portfolio that's not going to be going crazy and balanced and they will give you a loan. Last time I checked, it was LIBOR plus 75 basis points. So they were really low. Wow. There was a time when they were below 2%. And so people were like, Heck yeah, I'm going to lever this. I'm going to pay off my high uh, interest rates. So I don't know what the LIBOR is right now. If somebody knows it, maybe they could share it. Uh, share it in chat if you know what the LIBOR is. But it was always pretty darn low. And uh, your, your major brokerage houses will do it. So if you have a million dollar portfolio, they'll probably let you borrow six, 700,000 off of it. See if anybody knows. Sometimes somebody pops in and Gives us a great answer. So we'll, we'll hope and pray. Maybe somebody, no. Can a part-time W-2 employee, 20 hours a week, be considered a full-time real estate investor? 
I currently own for rentals and claim deductions such as home office and paying my child to perform bookkeeping. Oh, somebody says the one month, uh, g- give me the year, Chris. The, the, the three month LIBOR rate is, is, is 0.18. One year is 0.28. Jiminy Christmas. Jiminy Christmas. Yeah. So you'd have a really cheap loan off of your stock. Six months, 0.22. Anyway. Oh, that's crazy. Can I use funds for my Roth IRA to purchase property? Yeah. Inside your uh, Roth IRA, you could absolutely. Carla, it's called a self-directed IRA and you could absolutely do it. Somebody says it's going away for good. David Hall says it's going away for good. The LIBOR on one one. 2022. So you'd have to see what they're going to base it off of. Otherwise, somebody says for a Nevada personal residence, I'm going to put it in living trust. Is that enough for protection? Well, uh, Lisa, you have a homestead ex- exclusion in Nevada of, of 575,000. So it depends on how much equity you have. It might be fine. All right. Let's go back. I, I'm losing my mind. Can a part-time W-2 employee 20 hours a week be considered full-time real estate investor and claim deductions? Jeff, what do you think? We actually have two different things going on here. When we talk about part-time employee working 20 hours per week, if you're working on your properties more than that, say 21 hours a week, Mm -hmm. you can possibly claim the real estate professional. Mm -hmm. However, to do the home office, pay the child for bookkeeping, you don't need to be a real estate professional to do that. You're absolutely 100% correct. You may not be able to deduct it because of passive loss limitations, but you can still have those deductions on your rental properties. So what Jeff, I think what you're saying is on the rental properties, isolate them in their own LLC, mm-hmm. maybe have a corporation or an LLC tax as a corporation being the manager, uh, do your home office out of that. That's absolutely the best place. If it's administrative mm-hmm. uh, type things like the book, especially the bookkeeping, the administrative office. There's others that we talk about. That's the better place to do it in mm-hmm. your corporation. And then you can uh, offset other income. You're going to pay a management fee from your rental properties directly to the corporation who is managing them. And I might pay the child out of the uh, out of the LLC that holds the real estate so you could avoid the... Oh, that's a good point. The uh, self-employment or not yeah. self-employment tax, the uh, withholding, FICA, yeah. Medicare. Yeah. So, so there's the employment withholdings aren't required when you pay a child out of a sole proprietorship, they are when you do a corporation. Still, it's great because you can pay a child, even if they're dependent, $12,400 this year and not pay any tax on it. Right. And then you say, well, actually, it's a little higher than that. For last year, it was 12000 No, excuse me. Yeah. Was it twelve six this year? 12400 I think it's twelve five fifty or something okay. goofy. But it's more than 12000 that you could pay them and then they could put money into a Roth. They never paid tax on the money. They never have to pay tax again on that. And if they need the money, they could take it out. It's, it, it's, it's not penalized. If you just take the money that you put in out of a Roth, it's only on the growth of the Roth that you have to be careful of. But that home office, you could take an administrative office in your house, which in our experience is worth about 15 to 20% of whatever the costs are for maintaining that home, including the mortgage, the property taxes. If you have a somebody cleaning the house, if you have utility bills, all that stuff gets lumped in and you get to take a percentage. It's way different than a home office deduction that you've heard of with a sole proprietorship, but it's where you're doing your administrative services. And then with that child, like you, you're going to get some pretty bang for your buck and you don't have to worry about it. But, but yes, you could be considered a real estate investor without even hitting a time 
requirement. Mm -hmm. If you want to be a real estate professional where the losses are unlocked and offset your other ordinary income uh, in your capital income, then you have to be 750 hours and more than 50% of your time on real estate activities, development, construction, being a realtor, et cetera. And then your four rentals, chance you're going to have to be a material participant with them. So you'd aggregate those together on your schedule. So you'd have to make an aggregation election. Mm -hmm. You'd elect to be a real estate professional on your schedule. And uh, either yourself or a spouse would have to meet the 750 hour, 50% or more test. So even if you're part-time, if your spouse could qualify, they could also. And then you have to materially participate on your four rentals, which there's nine or seven or nine different tests. I always forget which one it is. I think it's down to seven now. I keep saying nine, but I think it's down to seven different tests. The easiest one is if you self-manage, you don't have to worry about time. If somebody is managing them for you, then you just have to do 100 hours a year and you're going to be fine. I probably blew some other people away with that. Sometimes you, we uh, talk fast. Uh, so if paying a child for bookkeeping, do you have to issue a W-2? If they're being paid through the corporation, yes. If you are not paying through the corporation, I don't know, out of the sole proprietorship, I can't remember. Yeah, you still have to issue a W-2. There's just no withholding. So you're doing the W-2. You, I would probably just do it through, if you're doing bookkeeping with Anderson, we do them for one individual. It's $199 a year for uh, four different payroll. So quarterly payroll for one individual. If you have two or uh, two, uh, to three, I think it is. I know for two that I think it would be four ninety nine. But or you just go through one of the payroll services online and just do once a year, if they'll allow you, or go to a payroll city or something and run it yourself and pay the. Mm -hmm. There's no withholding, so you could do that. You can save yourself a lot of time and energy. Administrative office claim: Do you have to give yourself a ten ninety nine? No, it's not reported as income under uh, twenty six cf or twenty five cfr. 1.162. I know it's the Code of Federal Regulations and it might be 1.62. I can't remember what it is. Okay. It's 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 it basically I could give you the site if you need it, but it's uh anything that's an that's part of a an accountable plan is excluded from withholding and from self-employment wages. So if Jeff is an employee and he brings in donuts. And the company reimburses Jeff. I don't. He doesn't have to report it anywhere. As an employer, I just write off the donuts. Right. And this is no different. If Jeff has an administrative office, and I say, "Hey, Jeff, you're doing all your administrative services in your house. I'm going to do a calculation as to his uh, depreciation, how much mm -hmm. of that house I am using as the employer at my for my benefit, and I'm allowed to reimburse him." Most employers don't. But let's say I reimburse Jeff. $5,000 a year for an administrative office in his home, he would not have to report that anywhere. And as an employer, it would just be an employee lease expense. And keep in mind, you don't have to own your home to do this. Rent a property, the property that you're running to live in also qualifies for this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Somebody else says administrative office, if I do construction or repair work specifically for the designated area, can I put it against the business rather than treat it as the 15 or 20%? Yes, Doug, there's direct expense. So like if I fix up the office or I paint it or I install uh, electric and stuff like that, that's 100% deductible. You know, I can reimburse you. Otherwise, let's say I have 20% of the, the usable square footage in the house is being used by the employer, then 20% of all your expenses associated with your home 
I could reimburse you. And again, you don't have to report it. That's why we like the administrative office. It's not that form, that self-employment office, home office form that you use as a sole proprietor, which I think is a gaping red flag. Mm -hmm. They say, oh, there's nothing that ties it. Well, there's no data on it, but we know that sole proprietors get audited 800% more often than their their brethren. (laughs) So it's like something's causing it. (laughs) How do they know? Probably this. All right. Somebody says, if I did a IRA to Roth IRA conversion at the end of 2020, can I still decrease that amount before I file my personal return still? So they didn't file the tax return on the Roth conversion. I don't like the Roth conversion if you're making a lot of money. So that's number one. Yeah, the Roth conversion is not subject to any of the CARES rules, the extended repayment or anything. There's no favorable treatment. Also, they with the 2017 Act, they did away with recharacterization. So whatever you converted in from an IRA to a Roth in December is going to be taxable for 2020. Yeah. Ooh, I don't think you can undo it, can you? No, recharacterizations are gone. But what if they haven't filed their tax return? It doesn't matter. Still. All right. As a real estate professional, can you count the time you spent on bookkeeping and education or just the time you work on the houses? Do you need to keep a detailed log? So number one, yes, you have to keep a detailed log. Number two, for the first half of the real estate test, you can use whatever you did on real estate So if you rent a construction company, you can use all your time involved in the construction, whether or not it involves your home or not, any of your properties. The problem is when you get into material participation, you can't count bookkeeping or looking around for properties or any of that. It's the actual management of your properties. And that's why it's a lower hourly requirement. And we grab both spouses to apply. So if Mm -hmm. both spouses are helping manage properties, it's 100 hours cumulative between the two of you, by the way. Or if you're self-managing, you don't have to worry about hours at all. All right, we've answered lots of questions. If you have more questions and you like this sort of thing, please check us out on uh, social media. We have Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook. And I think Jeff does TikToks uh, with his with his uh, parakeet and his, uh, what, you have 15 cats? And the talking bird who thinks he's a chicken. Mm-hmm. Look it up. Um, All right, you didn't make this one. Wow, you really aren't going to make this one out. All right, yeah, we probably did. All right, let's go on. Why are you guys giving the hatred? The hatred. I feel the hate. How come they're always nice to you and they're like giving me rations? All right, how do you how do you declare an administrative office? You just reimburse yourself. You just have to have an SRC corp uh, or an LLC tax as an SRC corp that can reimburse you. All right, I lived in my house since 2016. If I get married soon, do I qualify for a 1031 exchange, assuming my future wife never lived in the house? Also, can I buy my next primary residence first and then sell my previous one? If it has only been your primary residence, you don't qualify for a 1031 at all. I think I think, I think they meant 121. I think they means 121, the, the capital gain exclusion. If you lived in the house two of the last five years is your... Uh, somebody says they're being nice now. All I have to do is I'm just pushing back on you, Cher. You must have sad. I, I do look sad today. Now, Cher, you're my bud. You can never hurt my feelings. I have lived in my house since 2016. So they've been in that house for 15 years. The rules for a 121 exclusion are I lived in it. Five years. They've been in it. Uh, so they've been in it five years. Well, he's been in it. And he hasn't been. And it depends on whether the spouse has been living with him but it also has to be in their names. Yep. And if you're married, they'll attribute the ownership 
portion of that. So there's the lived in portion and the ownership portion. If you don't think this is important in divorces, it's really important and they attribute it. So yeah, just because you got married doesn't mean you get the $500,000 exclusion. Only one of you would meet the ownership and the lived in requirements. So you'd get half of it. You'd get the 250. And then can you buy another primary residence? Yeah. You have two of the last five years. So if you've lived in your home and you're going to get married and you buy a new home, you're going to get your capital gain exclusion on the property you lived in, assuming that your future wife did not live there. If she lived there for the last two years, mm-hmm. then you'd, I, I believe you'd both be able to qualify to get the full 500. And you could take the 121 exclusion anytime in the next three years. But if you buy a new house and sell it, you can only take this exclusion once every two years. So, you know, so you lived in it for five years. Let's say that you sell, let's say you buy a new house and you sell in the year 2024 and you take the $500,000 exclusion and then you sell the new house in 2025, you wouldn't be able to take the exclusion on the new house, even though you met two out of the five years, simply because you can only take that exclusion every two years. So you got to be a little careful on it, but somebody can map that out. Yeah, this, this really does sound like a mixture of the 1031 and 121. 1031 being the like kind of exchange, which only applies to investment real estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 121 only applies to principal residences. Uh, and we have talked about where you can combine the two, but you have to have both parts to make it work. Mm-hmm. 100%. This is fun. Our proceeds received from winning a case in court say $20 million taxable. You want to say it depends? It does, it, it does depend. It's taxable as a matter of rule. It depends on the source of the claim. And as a matter of rule, as a matter of course, it's taxable to you. And it gets worse. Attorney's fees are no longer deductible as a miscellaneous itemized deduction. So you could be, I get a big win mm-hmm. for, for punitive damages. I sue company a, a, ABC for bad faith or something. And I get this big, they defamed me. And I get a $20 million verdict. Not only do I have to pay a tax on 20 million, but my attorney who's going to walk away with probably 40% of that, they're going to walk away with 8 million. You can't deduct that. So you're going to pay tax on their 8 million too. Are any of the circuits allowing you to bifurcate those payments? They're trying. The circuits don't care. What you have to say is you pay my attorney separately mm-hmm. in my award. And we don't know because they, they, they call it a, a, a pseudo partnership. And so it's still, if it's a pseudo partnership, it's still miscellaneous itemized deduction to the one making the payment. So you could try. I don't think there's been a case yet on it. If there have, I haven't, I I don't remember. I think I've seen in the past where some of the circuits are more lenient towards that. Some of the circuits are not. Yep. Uh, Makes it kind of tough. Uh, The other exception is payments for medical are not taxable. It's medical and pain and suffering. So if I have pain and suffering, so like I get a $20 million verdict because I was pinned by my car, like somebody ran, slammed into me and I was, they had to use jaws of life and pull me mm-hmm. out. And I, and I had these injuries. There's going to be portions of it that might be lost wages. Mm-hmm. There might be portion of it, uh, loss of consortium to a spouse, portions of it where it's pain and suffering, portions of it's where it's punitive. And each one of those is taxed slightly differently, mm-hmm. right? Into different individuals. So like, for example, if I have lost wages, okay, I may even have withholding on it. If I am given an award of uh, pain and suffering, that's one of the exceptions where the IRS says you don't have to pay tax. 
So when you're negotiating your settlement, you really need to have your attorney and your tax advisor communicating because it could make a big difference. If I have a $20 million verdict or judgment in settlement, let's say that I enter into, and I'm going to owe 37%, you know, possibly what might be 39.6 plus I owe state, I could be as high as 50%. So let's just say this is in California. I could be looking at owing $10 million on that judgment. I pay my attorney eight. So start doing the math. I got 20. I gave my attorney eight and now I owe 10. I'm going to, I'm going to net $2 million out of that 20. So, so let me ask you, does the respondent, the, the defendant, do they care how this money is allocated? Not really. It, you know, it depends on the insurance policy and whether it's deductible, but generally as a, as a matter of course, no. So the person awarded the decision could end up with less than 20% of the total as you described, correct? Yes. Absolutely. And I've seen it. So it's not like it's, it's uh, unusual. It happens all the time and it's happening a lot now because you have all the, uh, like in my, my neck of the woods, you have personal injury lawyers all over the place. So you're going to have a, a part, portion of it's going to go back to experts, portion of it's going to be attributed to doctors. And it depends on what your agreement is with your attorney. They may be saying, hey, I'm entitled to gross, or they may say I'm entitled to gross net of costs and fees. It may be that they, they enter into an agreement that says, we'll never take more than you, but then they're going to still, you know, arguably you might get saddled with the tax on it. And that's an IRS issue. I don't, I don't know how hard they're going to, you're going to do it. Somebody says that doesn't make any sense. The attorney's fee would be taxable income to the attorney. So the client has to pay tax on the entire award, then one third of the award for being taxed twice. Yes. So uh, that's because the miscellaneous itemized deduction went away, Greg. In uh, 2017, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act did away with it. It's gone. So you can't write off and deduct your accountant fees either. So anything you pay your accountant or your attorney, you don't get to deduct unless it's through a business. And then in that particular case, what attorneys are trying to do is say, hey, pay me separately. So a good attorney is going to say in the settlement agreements, you're paying for, for my costs. But the IRS could still say, I'm paying a bill for Jeff Mm -hmm. to his attorney, and I don't know how that's going to be treated. Something in, uh, should I apply for living on the floor? Okay, I'm not going to get into this. But yeah, it could be really rough. So you're you're hitting, isn't that wild? Like, that's one of the things that I get mad at my profession. So I guess a little front, uh, huge. Even Uh, even when they give you the guarantee, we will not take more than 40%. If you read it closely, it says 40% plus out-of-pocket cost, which can be substantial. Yep. Somebody actually wrote here that there was Medicare payment out of a judgment as well. She could end up owing more than the net to her. Yeah. Isn't that wild? No, just keep your money. Yeah. Hey, it's okay. I'll just go. <laughs> anyway, let's not keep crying about that. I actually, we actually saw that happen to a guy and the settlement was, it was a huge deal on an estate where they were settling it out and unbeknownst was the tax implications. And we just tried, I said, Hey, I don't know the answer because nobody does. The tax law just changed. And at the very end of 2017, really 2018, and I haven't seen much on it. I I can't see the IRS having the time and the wherewithal to sit there and attack these, but I I don't know the answer off the top of my, off the top of my head. Speaking off of uh, answers off the top of my head, I just grabbed the, the Amazon page for Infinity Investing. We published it on the 13th and it's number one 
new release in financial services. And I think we've only gotten five-star reviews. Yes, it's better than you suck. You know, what we do is we pay you if you don't leave a bad review. I'm just, that'll drive Powell crazy. Uh-huh. Uh. He knows why. He would just, he would go, good. So somebody says, Toby's book is so good. I appreciate that, Jill. So we like, we like any positive comments. It, all it is, is again, I always say it's, we're the barber and we want your hair to grow, Jeff. So we sell the hair cream that makes your hair grow so we can trim it for you. We want it to grow a big lush mane so that we can always cut your hair because it's hard to have tax problems if you don't have money problems in the first place, meaning like too much money. So we need to get there. Question. <laughs> Personal injury case is paid by the hour out there and it's best way to go if you have the funds to pay. Right off legal and get maximum gain. You don't have to pay the contingency. I still, I don't know if you're going to get the right off the legal, even if it's hourly because miscellaneous itemized deductions are gone. Love the new book. Thank you. It's That's worth kudos. Lisa, thank you. Nobody here even, uh, they all make fun of me. All right, so when is the audio book coming out? There is an audio book. I don't know when it's released. Patty might know. Let's see. Did you send text? Yeah, I did. Uh, Sherry, I did respond to your, your kids. So I think if that's the same thing. Oh, end of the month. So the audio book's coming out. That was annoying dealing with the audio book. But I uh, read your book already. It's great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Share it with somebody else. Hey, if you guys always say this, but if you send Patty a picture of yourself with your book, a smiling face, we're going to aggregate those eventually and throw them up on the site. If you're willing to do that, we'll send you a signed copy for free. For free. So you can gift yours and then you'll have a signed copy. We like signed copies of things. I still have a Robert Kiyosaki signed Rich Dad Poor Dad that I keep on my. Uh, right behind me on my desk. Had a pretty big impact on a lot of people. All right. I need to increase my income. How should one file with multiple properties? I don't even know where to go with this one. Um, mm. I think he means I need to show more income on my tax return. How should oh, I? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say charge more rent. <laughs> uh, I, I think that goes back to what you were talking about earlier. Uh, with the page two of the Schedule E, running it through a partnership or an S-corp or something. You don't want to do it in a C-corporation. You want to not do all of the strategies that we teach you. So if I want to increase my income and I have multiple properties, I want to make sure that I'm not taking accelerated depreciation. I am using standard mm-hmm. MACRs and I'm taking it, like if it's rental property, I'm just taking 27 and a half year depreciation I'm not accelerated if I have something that might be in a safe harbor to treat as a repair as opposed to t- treating as a, uh, a beneficial improvement, then I would, I would depreciate that as opposed to taking the deduction now. So, but I, and I can't do anything illegal, but I, do, I can choose to stretch out the deduction on pieces of that property so that my income goes up if I have to. That said, if I need to increase my income, how should one file? You're not going to be trying to maximize and shorten out that depreciation. And, uh, you know, frankly, you may want to buy some more if you want to show increase your income. We, we've had clients who have not wanted to report deductions because it makes their income too low. And there's no requirement that you report all your deductions. Mm-mm. However, that does pay a 
have a cost on the other side, you're going to pay more tax. You're going to pay a little more in tax, but if that's what you need to qualify, it's really important that you talk about this with your lender and -hmm. find out what the number is. So if they tell you that you have to meet $100,000, I might sandbag it for 5,000 bucks if it means I qualify for a loan, a particular program. And like Jeff says, you're not required to depreciate your property. You're required to recapture that as though you did. And so if you're going to 1031 exchange or you're never going to sell the property anyway, you might say, yeah, I'll skip a year. Mm -hmm. I have a $10,000 deduction I could take. I'm not going to take it because I want my income to look better. Okay, great. I suppose I could accelerate that later. That's also a case where you might want to capitalize things that were more likely repairs. Yeah. Like if I fix my roof, I have a choice. Do I want to write it off as a repair? Like I fixed it. Or did I improve that? And I write it off over 27 and a half years. So I could just choose. So you guys are funny about the books. I love people who, they, they, they like their books. I'll write you something nice if, you, if, if it's for kids. If it's for you guys, I might do that too. But if it's for kids, I like to be snarky with them. All right. Somebody was like that with me. And I always remember that stuff. They write me little things that are kind of quirky. And I'll remember them. If they just say, good luck, dude then I pretty much just be like, all right, you're a goober. All right. What is the process to begin issuing W-2s from a C-Corp? It's been an active entity for several years, but I am just now needing to pay a W-2 salary. So I need to start issuing W-2s, which means I need to start issuing payroll. Mm -hmm. What if you need to start paying out a salary? You could do it yourself. I don't always recommend it. I prefer using one of the payroll companies. ADP. Paychecks. Paycheck. Uh, there's a couple out there. Wells Fargo. QuickBooks has. Uh, into it. Yep. So yeah, you're gonna you're gonna need to do that. You're gonna have quarterly tax reporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on how much you're paying yourself, you may have tax payments that are due every other week or every other or after every payroll or might only be due monthly. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of rules that go in that. The nice thing about using a payroll company is you tell them how much you want to be paid. They do it. They take care of all the taxes and uh, so forth. Like I'm with ADP. They take care of my workers' comp, my insurance, and so forth. Use a payroll service, and especially depending on how many employees you have. So I'm going to give you guys a rule of thumb, and you get it from no place else. This is my experience. If you have one or two people or just family members, by all means, do it internally and do your, and I would, I would end up doing it on a quarterly basis. I don't think there's no requirement unless you have outside parties to run payroll every, there's no federal requirement to do it on any set period. States will say every two, two weeks if it's non-related parties. So if it's just family members, just do it quarterly. If it's more, if you have non-family members or it's more than two or three, use something like Inspirity or a professional employee organization. And here's why. Inspirity is one that I like. They're huge. They're, they're partners with United Healthcare. You will get access to health plans and to the experience for unemployment, which is actually a huge deal in most states is how much they charge you for unemployment, state unemployment, mm-hmm. as though you are a huge employer because they're going to lump you in with their, if it's not millions, I'd be surprised, millions of employees nationwide, and you're going to get that buying power. So you're going to pay them a percentage. And it might end up, in my experience, it's usually like eight or 900 bucks a year, maybe a thousand bucks that they're going to make per employee. But now they're doing your HR, they're doing your workbook. They're, they're on the hook. If somebody says discrimination, they're like, 
they are the employer, but you get all the benefits and you are now buying at their buy level. Like they have a lot more juice than you to get really good plans. So I would suggest that you use a PEO. There's others. Uh, Insperity is the big boy in the big one on the block. And I could be more than happy to tie you into some of their higher ups. They're nice folks, but they're, they do a really good job. And then you don't have to mess with, with HR. If you are less than 10 people, you go to an Insperity because you can't even get a group health plan without having to go into the off market where, where it's not a regular health plan. If you're between 10 people on up to about 50, you still want to get it quoted to see whether it's worth it for you. And if you're somebody who just values your time and you don't want to hire a full-time HR person, then use a professional employee organization. You still get all the tax benefits and everything else as though your employee, like the employee, the employee retained um, tax credit. Retention. Retention, the employee retention credit. Yeah, I'm trying to think of that. And Jake, the name is Inspirity, but email. Have, uh, reach out to Patty and Patty will get me. I, I would say... Patty, if you know Fred Simmons over at Inspirity, that's a good group. Uh, Patty, if, if you can even find that email, you can just send it out to all these people. It doesn't matter. Fred's a higher up with Inspirity. They, they do huge organizations too. Like they do one of those stream, I won't say the name of the company, but they do streaming and they're really, really, really popular. And it rhymes with wet, no. <laughs> wet mix. I don't know, but they, they do a really good job. There's not too many of those companies that I like, but. There's a few. And that way you get their, their buying power. You can get away from HR because I hate HR. Like we have 300 and what we were at 68 beginning of the year employees and we have full-time HR people, people, right? Oh, there we go. So Patty just put it out there. Yeah. And Spirity, super nice. Or you could, if you have his email, I, I have his email somewhere. You could always just reach out to Patty. We'll, we'll set it up. If you're doing one person, then just run it through us or through, uh, Anil, you could do Payroll City, you could do some of those others. And I'll, I'll be, it sounds like a lot of you guys are interested. So I'll, I'll bring their information next time too. Maybe we'll email it out. They're really nice folks. YouTube, join us on YouTube if you like this stuff. Yay. Somebody says, what happens if you do not pay back the 1099R COVID-related distribution in three years? You pay tax on it over the next three years, Gail. So you recognize one third, one third, one third, and that's right. it. There's no prepayment. There's no penalty. Somebody says Fred.Simmons at Inspirity is his email if needed. Thanks, Chris. So, Patty, if you could just share that with everybody, that'd be great. Wow, a lot of you guys are interested in that. Uh, maybe I'll have them on someday. Could explain how this stuff works. I use, I, I've done it with other companies. Not everybody likes payroll companies or, you know, or and, professional. And they're kind of expensive. Yeah. The payroll companies are. Yeah. Well, if I run payroll like ADT and all these others, they're going to charge you hundreds of dollars. If you use a professional employee organization, they're going to charge you more, but the question is, is it net in your favor? Because if I have to do L&I, if I have to do unemployment and they don't know me, I pay highest. If I get a group plan, I might be paying 600 bucks an individual. Whereas if I was with a larger group, I'd be at 325. And so you have to factor that in how much it's going to put in your pocket. Right. And then you just calculate that. And sometimes like in... I've had companies that were at 28 and 26 employees where it was cheaper to have the PEO. Now, does everybody like the PEO? Not if you're like walking around them and you're like, sometimes they're like, oh, I have to deal with payroll. So like if they're asking for time off or, or uh, time off requests and stuff, they're annoyed. Everybody's annoyed at HR. 
It's never a question. <laughs> it's just <laughs> something. Let me see if Michael has a question. Michael, I'm going to go all the way back and see if I could find your question. I don't see it. If you could repost it, we might just answer it right here on there. So I don't see your first question being posted. I don't know how to say your last name, and I, nor would I violate your privacy. All right. AndersonAdvisors.com forward slash podcast also is a good one. If you like our stuff, you could go listen to our Tax Tuesdays. What's funny is eight of the top 10 podcasts we had last year were Tax Tuesdays. Wow. Yeah. It's wild. <laughs> it's like we were laughing about that. Like, uh, you guys are listening to tax stuff. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> Actually, you're our kind of people. <laughs> if you like replays and your platinum, you can find them in your platinum portal. Otherwise, uh, I think that if you registered for it, we send you out the recording anyway. And it's in the podcast for the last few. So you can always go back in. If you have questions, that you want answered on the air, by all means, send them out to tax Tuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com. Come check with us. Yeah, I do have one last thing. If you are in California and you received PPP loan forgiveness last year, you may want to wait on filing your return because it looks like there's a chance California may might change it. May come into conformity with the uh, federal rules. All right. So what Jeff is referring to is just because the feds say you can do something like accelerated depreciation, PPP loans, where you could write off the loan against expenses, doesn't mean your state's going to do it. In California, well, they're difficult. Like, Sometimes it takes a while for them to come around. Do they, have they ever come around? They still don't let bonus depreciation. Right. So they're just, uh, they're peaches. Opportunity farm. <laughs> so they, they don't, yeah, they don't. They're just, they're just a lot of fun to deal with. The state of California needs their money. Somebody says, can you clarify if we could still contribute to a Roth solo 401k for 2020? Em- employee? No. Employee deferrals? No. Right. I think that employer contributions, yes. Up, up until the due date of the return. Up until the due date. Can you do an, empl- I didn't even know about that. Let me think about that off the top of my head. I don't know if I know the answer. Can the employer put in 25%? That's a deduction. So no, it wouldn't go into the Roth. I think that has to be done from the employee side. Yes. To my knowledge, the employer can only contribute to the traditional side. Yeah. So I don't, uh, so Lena, I, I don't think you could do the Roth solo 401k contribution, but you might be able to do a regular Roth IRA and it might be looking at, but, but that's something that send in to the tax Tuesday to this email, the tax Tuesday at Anderson advisors. Cause I'd like to get an answer for you and we could probably find out for you pretty quick. Okay. So was it? No, I didn't see it. I was scanning through here, looking, 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 might've been something other. I no response to my earlier first question. I don't see it. That's probably why they either got it. Maybe they were off the, sometimes if you leave and then you come back in, your your questions are gone. So submit it. If you didn't get your question answered, something says for te- California, also no real estate professional for state taxes. Correct. So Bill, very, for very good poll. So everything we talk about, we tend to focus on the federal and then the states tend to be not nearly as big an issue, but it doesn't mean that you get to take your loss if you're a real estate professional in California and boy, your taxes keep growing. What are you at 13% now on some of you guys? The best thing there is not to make money. 
And when I say not make money, have it go through a different entity or make sure that you're using a, a 501c3 or a donor advice fund to make sure you're pushing your income lower so you're not getting killed at their higher rates. That goes for New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, uh, Maryland. <laughs> Most of the big, those are the nasty ones uh, where they have limitations on your salt too. So you want to make sure you're pushing it down. So even if you took the deduction on personal income, the corp can reimburse you. No, 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 no. So uh, we would want to look at that. You can't get reimbursed twice for the same expense. So it just depends. And, uh, and medical is a good example of that, where the deduction, you're probably going to get more bang for the buck. I have the corporation reimburse. Mm-hmm. Then putting it on your schedule A. Absolutely. And that's it's, somebody just put this up here too. For the current year 2021, our charitable contributions fully deductible. Uh, or is a requirement for exceeding percentage of taxable income threshold. Roger, you can write off 100% of cash contributions against your uh, 100% of your adjusted gross income. You can also write off as a married couple up to $600 above the line without doing a Schedule A. So if you're if you're somebody who does cash gifts periodically, but maybe it's 100 bucks here, 100 bucks there, as a single person, you can write off 300. Uh, as a married couple, you can write off 600 for 2021. For last year, it's 300 both. Uh, I don't know why Congress wrote it that way. It was silly, but but without regards to Schedule A. So you could still take your standard deduction and $300 of cash deduction. For 2021, you could write off 100% of your adjusted gross income on, under cash. If it's giving a, an appreciated capital asset, it's 30%. And that's for gifts to a public charity. So if you set up a 501c3 as a public charity, even if you control it, you could still write that off. If it's a private foundation, you're limited to 30%. Let me see if there's anything else. Still waiting. And I, and I did read where uh, the percentage of married couples filing jointly, taking itemizing is extremely low. So if, if I'm married, married couples in general are not itemizing because the standard deduction is so high. Yeah. Uh, and that was, I want to say 18% of, uh, all married couples. So that, that extra $300, $600 of charitable deductions on page one. So 80 some percent. It was like 82% filed the standard deductions yep. last year. Yeah. So we, you know what's funny is when that first came out, we pegged it at 80%. We said everything. So somebody says, from a taxation perspective, what is the best place for a US citizen to live? Is it Puerto Rico or somewhere stateside? Uh, Puerto Rico, if you live there and you have Puerto Rican sourced income, your income taxes would be zero to 4%. That's almost impossible to beat. Your dividends and your capital gains are zero so long as it's sourced in uh, Puerto Rico. And uh, if you had like highly appreciated assets and you move there, the appreciation prior to moving there would still be taxed in the States. And then the portions above that would not be. If you hold them for Less than 10 years, I think it's, gosh, I want to say it's 5%. If it's less than a year, I think it's 15. There's two thresholds. I forget them off the top of my head. But uh, yeah, Puerto Rico is pretty amazing. Uh, They're losing people and they need people. But if they grant statehood, and I know it's come up many times before, all that's off the table. Yeah, because right now it's being treated as a foreign jurisdiction. So even though it's a territory, it's still treated as a foreign jurisdiction. So yeah, then all of a sudden that, that goes... So don't move to Puerto Rico just because for the taxes. Move there because it's beautiful and 
old San Juan is amazing. If you ever get inside the fort there, and Rio Grande is awesome. Dorado is awesome. There's some, just some great places. And I forget the place on the other side of the island where we have a bunch of clients that move there. It's gorgeous, but it is an island. It is to the south of Cuba. So like you have to go a little ways. Otherwise, you're going to be doing the Florida or Texas thing. <laughs> All right, guys. Register for the Infinity Workshop on May 15th. Patty just reminded you guys. And uh, we will see you in two weeks. Until that time, wish you all well. And I hope you guys are doing great and stay safe. And we will see you guys in two weeks. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.